so we're on page 41 to begin with, which is pretty easy to find. <coughs> so we'll go from Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery of on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Everybody that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Let every girl live. So the next reading, as Scott was saying, is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. And that's on page 682, yes, of the Red Pew Bibles. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. There, Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt... Out of Egypt, I call my son. When Herod realized what had been, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Mag- Magi, Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ram. Rama, Rama, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, that's the reading. Holland, 1944, at the height of the Nazi occupation. Caspar Tenboom and his two adult daughters, Betsy and Corrie Tenboom, have been operating a safe house for two years. Every day, this Christian family risked their lives hiding Jews and other refugees from the Gestapo, the Nazi secret police. Most of the time, they'd have six or seven extra people living in their house illegally, usually four Jews and two or three other members of the Dutch underground. Sometimes they'd have more than that as a few people stayed for a few hours or a few days while they found another safe location for them to hide. In this way, the Ten Boom family managed to save more than 800 Jews over two years. But 
on February 28th, 1944, they were betrayed. A Dutch man by the name of Jan Vogel came to them asking for help. The Gestapo had just arrested his wife. He didn't know what to do. Turns out he was lying. He was actually there as an informant working for the Gestapo. He was there to see if the rumours were true. Were there really Jews hiding in the house? And based on Jan Vogel's intel, the Gestapo raided the house. They set a trap and they remained there all day in secret, arresting everyone who came. All told, they arrested more than 30 people. They knew there were Jews somewhere, or they knew there had been Jews somewhere in the house, but they couldn't find them. Couldn't find them anywhere. Turns out they were there. They were hidden behind a false wall at the back of Corrie's bedroom. In this hiding place were two Jewish men, two Jewish women, and two members of the Dutch underground. It was about the size of a wardrobe, standing room only. They had no water, little food, and in this dark, cramped hiding place, these six people stood silently for 47 hours until they were finally rescued by some other members of the Dutch resistance. And over those two days, Caspar, Betsy and Corrie ten Boom and their other family members were asked again and again, where are you hiding the Jews? What have you done with them? And yet despite this incredible pressure, they would not give them up. They wouldn't even admit that they'd ever been there. Imagine yourself in that situation for a moment. You've been hiding fugitives for more than two years. Finally, the gig is up. And you're asked a direct question. Are there any Jews in this house? Ethics is hard. What do you do in this situation? If you say yes, the people you're trying to protect are going to die. If you say nothing, well then they're going to ask you again. And again. And again. Perhaps with a fist. Maybe at the barrel of a gun. Are there any Jews in this house? Ethics is hard. Do you lie? No, there's no Jews here, and there never have been. That's your only hope of saving them, isn't it? If you do anything else, well, their deaths are going to be on your head, aren't they? Is it okay to lie? Now, clearly this is an extreme example, so let's just step back from that for a moment and consider that question more generally. Is it ever okay for one of God's people to lie? Well, to help us answer that question, I want to take you to a story in the book of Exodus in which two Israelite midwives were faced with this very question. Let me pray for us though, because this is a, is a difficult topic. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us uh, and that in it you reveal your character and your heart. Uh, Lord, we ask as we think about this issue of truthfulness, please help us to, to know your mind on the matter. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Uh, as Scott's already mentioned, uh, we're picking up my very occasional sermon series on the book of Exodus. Um, basically, whenever Scott asks me to preach, I'm just going to do the next bit of Exodus, which is, is fun for me, uh, and I hope it's fun for you too. Uh, it's been several months, though, since I was last asked, uh, so I suspect probably the, the story is not very familiar. So let me just recap the first 14 verses of the book of Exodus. God has made some incredible promises to Abraham. He's promised that his descendants would be as his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. He's promised to give them a land of their own. And more than that, he's promised to bless the entire world through the family of Abraham. And as the book of Exodus opens, we see Abraham's descendants moving to Egypt under God's guidance. 70 in all. And there, over 400 years, their numbers grow and grow until they are exceedingly numerous. It's inescapably clear that God has kept His first promise. The people of Israel, the family of Abraham, are as many as the stars in the sky. They're like a plague on the land of Egypt, if you like. But then, a new king came to power, a king who did not know Israel, who did not know their God and did not care about the good that Joseph had done for the nation. He tried to stop the promises of God. He was scared by the numbers of Israelites. His land was full of them and so he enslaved them. He put them to work building major infrastructure projects. But what was the outcome? The more they were enslaved, the more they multiplied and spread. The, king plan, the king's plans came to nothing, for God was determined to keep his promise. The people of Israel would be as many as the stars in the sky. And through them, God would bless all the nations of the world. And there was nothing that the king of Egypt could do to stop it. Nothing at all. But that didn't keep him from trying. Uh, plan A had failed, and so Pharaoh introduced plan B. The Egyptians were ruthless and worked the Israelites to the bone. If you like, chain gangs with bonus brutal beatings. They made the lives of God's people bitter with brick and mortar and labour and all kinds of work in the fields. And that's where we left them last time. Their lives were bitter. Plan A had failed, but plan B was underway. But plan B wasn't working. So Pharaoh tried plan C, and that's where we pick up the story today at verse 15. If, if you've got a Bible handy, it'd be good to have it open. Uh, I'm going to pick it up at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to, he, to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Plan C, kill the baby boys. This is a tactic designed to breed out Israelite identity. Pretty quickly, if, if this worked, there wouldn't be any males left. No male Israelites. And so what would that mean for the, the young Israelite girls growing up and seeking husbands? Well, the only men that they could marry would be Egyptians. And okay, some of them would choose to stay single, but most wouldn't. And pretty quickly, what would that mean? An end to Israelite families with an Egyptian at the, head of every, at the head of every household. And pretty quickly that means there are no more Israelite children, no more Israelite identity, and no more Israel. 
If it worked, the king of Egypt would gain a more submissive, more ethnically integrated population, more, which is more stable, and he wouldn't even have to take a, a hit to population numbers to do it. He'd get to keep the workforce and get to keep the strong economy that goes with it. This is pure wickedness, but it gets worse. Because look who he recruits to do his dirty work. The Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. These are the women whose job it is, is to care for midwives, to care for mothers and newborn babies. And he orders them to start killing boys. It's a sneaky plan. Because it could almost seem like the baby was stillborn, couldn't it? Mum would, would be senseless from the stress and the pain of labour. Dad is most likely out of the room. There's all sorts of things that go wrong in childbirth all the time. It'd be easy for the midwife to get away with it. Very easy. It, it could all just seem like a tragic accident, couldn't it? Uh, at least Pharaoh's first two plans were honest and straightforward. This is sneaky, cruel, disgusting. The king of Egypt is putting children on the front line of a political power struggle, and that is not okay. He's trying to defeat his enemies by murdering their children. In the face of this extreme evil, what are these women going to do? Will they buckle? Will they find a way to stand up under the pressure? Well, heroically, these two midwives refuse. Have a look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. These women are heroes. They're risking their lives. Because it's clear that this king of Egypt has no regard for human life. He is happy to use and abuse and discard people. And so if he finds out these two women are lying to him, if he finds out that they've disobeyed him, what's he going to do? He's going to kill them. And most likely, he'll probably put someone else in, the, in, the, in their place to do their job and kill the boys. Yet because these women feared God, they were willing to risk their lives. They did not obey Pharaoh's order. Actually, more than that, they actually did the direct opposite. They caused the boys to live. They preserved the lives of these innocent little ones. They did all the things that a midwife normally does to make sure that a baby is born safely. They directly disobeyed Pharaoh's direct order and they put their lives on the line. Heroes. The very next verse, they're hauled before Pharaoh to explain. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Pharaoh holds them responsible. This is your fault. Why are there so many newborn Hebrew boys? Why haven't there been a string of tragic deaths, tragic stillbirths among the Israelite nation? a tense moment, isn't it? You can almost see Pharaoh's face red with rage as he screams at these awful women who will not do what they're told. The midwives speak up. Hebrew women 
are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife arrives. What a weird thing to say. I'm glad you're laughing, Lachlan, because it's comical, isn't it? Hebrew women are so good at hard labour that they work hard at labour. It's just, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It can't possibly be true, can it? That every single Hebrew mum gives birth before the midwife can get there. It's just ludicrous. It's laughable. These women have just lied to Pharaoh's face. Flat out lied. And yet, he buys it. He has nothing to say in response. We don't hear another word from him. He does nothing to contradict the word of these women. It's weird. Plan C. Have the midwives kill the boys in secret while the mothers were senseless due to pain. What's the outcome? Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. The king's initial fear was that there were too many Israelites. Well, guess what, Pharaoh? There's more now. His attempt to reduce the number of Israelites has failed and the people multiply and became more numerous. Plan C was a total and utter failure. Pharaoh is totally powerless to stop the promises of God. But there's something really strange here, apart from their excuse. Shifra and Puah lie to the king and there's no way that that can be true. It's just impossible, isn't it? They flat out lied. But that's not the strange thing though. There's, we come across people in the Bible doing, doing and saying wrong things all the time. It's one of the things that convinces me most that the Bible is true, is that it mirrors accurately the world I know. Um, the, 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 the people I meet in the Scriptures are people I recognise, people I meet every day. Now the fact that there's a lie uh, in, in the Scriptures is not strange. What's strange is God's response. God commends these two women. Have a look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives. Or verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. These two heroic midwives are blessed by God and given families of their own. This is a clear commendation of these women. From an Old Testament perspective, to have a family of your own is a clear sign of blessing from God and to be childless is a sign of God's curse. So the fact that we know that they're given families tells us that God was pleased with these women. Add to that, we actually know their names as well, Shifra and Puah. Contrast that to the nameless Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he is a nobody. We, we never know his name. Exodus gives us no real clues as to who he might be. Certainly never tells us his name. But Shifra and Puah, two faithful women who refuse to allow evil to be done. It's not just that they refused to participate and said, no, I won't do it. They actually risked their lives to ensure that no one else could do it either. They made sure that they would stay in the job so that they could continue not doing what Pharaoh told them to do. This story of two heroic women who are commended by God for telling a bald-faced lie, I find it pretty unsettling. Do you? Because it shows me that there's actually some occasions 
where a lie is justifiable. Actually, more than that, it shows me that there are some situations in which a lie can be called good. I hope that's unsettling to you. I want my ethics to be black and white. I want it to be simple. But ethics is not simple, is it? It's hard. God doesn't give us simple rules to follow and just say, if you tick all these boxes, then you'll be sweet. The Bible doesn't have, won't have a bar of that kind of way of thinking about life. It's absolutely clear that God desires His people to be truthful. Uh, here's a list of verses that tell us that. Uh, later in Exodus, Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, God orders Israel, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. Uh, in the next book, Leviticus chapter 19 verse 11, He says, do not lie. Can't get any clearer than that, can you? Psalm 101 verse 7, no one who practices deceit will dwell in the house of the Lord. No one who speaks falsely will stand in God's presence. Ephesians 4 verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. Or Colossians 3 verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Deceit is something that belongs to our broken, sinful nature, the nature that was put to death with Jesus on the cross. Truthfulness belongs to our new nature, our new life that's hidden with Christ. It's absolutely clear that God desires His people to speak truthfully, isn't it? But it's equally clear uh, in this story in Exodus 1 that God is pleased with these two liars. He's kind to them. He rewards them. Ethics is hard. Well, what gives? What is it about this situation that makes a lie not only permissible, but actually good? There's a concept in Christian ethics that's known as a retrieval ethic, and I think that's what's going on here. Um, a retrieval ethic begins by recognising that our world is not what it should be. It's broken by sin, uh, and we find ourselves in all sorts of situations that are less than ideal. Uh, it'd be great if things were always simple, but it's rare that they are. But sometimes, you hit a situation that is so messed up by the way that sin has messed the world up, that you get to choose between bad, worse and horrible. A retrieval ethic applies in that kind of situation when you've got to try and work out, is there anything good that I can retrieve out of this situation, out of this mess? Uh, these two midwives were in that kind of a situation, weren't they? Think about their options. They could do as they were told and commit infanticide. They could directly refuse and probably get executed, but certainly they'd be removed from their jobs and someone else would be given the, the job of committing infanticide. Or three, they could lie. Three bad options, aren't they? There's no good outcome. There's no good action left to them in this situation. Committing murder is not good. Getting killed and letting someone else commit murder, it's not good. Lying is not good. There's no good action left to them. They have to choose between bad, worse and horrible. Lying is not good. It wasn't good. And yet, in this situation, it's the best alternative that they can choose. 
the best possible outcome. It's the only way to retrieve anything good. Is lying always wrong for one of God's people? Well, based on this story uh, and the fact that God commends them, these lying midwives, I have to say no. No, lying is not always wrong. That's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? It's a really uncomfortable thought. However, and this is a very big however, I think this story amplifies the importance of truth-telling. It ratchets up just how significant things have to be before a lie becomes thinkable. Think about the kinds of lies that people usually tell. Actually, think about the kind of lie that you usually tell, or or the kind of lie that you're usually, that you're tempted to tell. You can be honest with yourself, no one's going to ask you to to tell them what it was. Maybe they will, yeah. I, I certainly won't. What's the kind of thing that you're tempted to lie about? Lies are almost always good for the liar, aren't they? We usually lie to make ourselves look good. We usually lie to get ourselves out of trouble. We usually lie to bring about something good that we want for us. Lies are almost always for the good of the liar. I reckon in 99.99999% of situations that we're tempted to lie, it's because we're selfish. We want something for ourselves. In what kind of situation does a lie become morally thinkable? In what sort of situation do I have to be in that a lie becomes good. It's going to be pretty intense, isn't it? It's going to be extreme. Think about Corrie ten Boom again for a moment. Did she do the wrong thing when she lied about the Jews hiding in her bedroom? Well, the Queen of Holland didn't think so. She knighted Corrie ten Boom for her efforts after the war was over. The, uh, the Jewish Museum of the Holocaust in Jerusalem didn't think so either. They invited her to plant a tree in the avenue of the righteous Gentiles. Righteous, they called her. A liar. What sort of situation do I have to be in that a lie becomes morally good? It's not an easy question to answer, is it? Ethics is hard. It's really hard. I don't have any simple answers for you. I wish morality was simple and that there were easy formulas to follow. Puah and Shifra chose to lie, not for their own sake, but for the sake of hundreds and hundreds of baby Israelite boys. And God commended them for it. Is it ever okay for one of God's people to lie? Is it okay for me to lie in this situation? I'll leave you to think about that. God is determined to keep his promises. He promised Abraham that, he would, uh, that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the shore. And nothing Pharaoh did could stop God from keeping his promises. Everything he tried failed. And the number of Israelites continued to grow. And of course that didn't stop him. He moved on from, from plan C which had failed to plan D. Have a look at verse 22, the last verse of our passage. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that's born to the Hebrews, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Secrecy failed, and so Pharaoh enlisted all of his people, all of Egypt, to begin murdering Israelite boys. Some people never learn. Everything he's tried so far 
to thwart God's promises has just made it worse. Why does he think this plan is going to be any different? Actually, this plan will bring about his own downfall. But we'll leave that for another day. We'll leave the outcome of that plan. To finish, let's think for a moment about how this story points us to Jesus. Because the book of Exodus is an amazing paradigm for the life of Jesus. Uh, The Exodus event was the great salvation by which God established His old covenant people. And the Jesus event was the great salvation by which God established His new covenant people. And there are an incredible number of parallels between the two. Jesus' story mirrors the Exodus in so many ways. Actually, that that might be a challenge. Over this run-up to Easter, why not read the first 20 chapters of Exodus and see how it points you to the story of Jesus? I think you'll be really surprised. Here in this chapter, for example, we've met a king who is not interested in God or his people or his promises. This king will do anything to hold on to power. He will even stoop to murdering children. He reminds me of another king. Another king desperate to hold on to power. His name was Herod, king of the Jews. When Herod heard that a new king of the Jews had been born, he asked some wise men to find the boy and report back. A bit like the Nazis sent Jan Vogel to check were there any Jews in the house. Herod said that he wanted to go and worship this newborn king. But he was lying. And it wasn't the good kind of lie. He wasn't seeking to protect the lives of innocents. He wasn't in an extreme situation where his only options were bad, worse or terrible. No, Herod was looking out for himself. He was planning to kill God's one and only son. He was freely choosing evil. But just like Pharaoh, Herod could not stop the promises of God. For God warned the wise men in a dream... And so they went home by another way and didn't go back to Herod. And when Herod realized they weren't coming back, he sent soldiers to murder every boy under the age of two in the region of of Bethlehem where he'd heard that this new king was. He was a wicked king who cared only for himself. But he he could not stop God's great salvation. He could not stop God's plan to bless the world through the ultimate descendant of Abraham. God sent an angel to Jesus' father, Joseph, to warn him of the danger. And so Joseph took the boy and his mother and fled to Egypt until the threat was passed. And so, just as in the Exodus, God brought Israel, his one and only son, up out of Egypt. It's one of the things God calls Israel in the book of Exodus, his one and only son, his firstborn so also in the life of Jesus, God would bring His one and only Son up out of Egypt. The story of the Exodus should remind us again and again of the story of Jesus. God promised to bless the whole world with the forgiveness of sins and there is nothing that anyone can do to stop God from keeping His promises. God sent His Son into the world that people from every tribe and language and nation might be blessed through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus will come again soon to gather his people, to dwell with them. We will be his people and he will be our God. And as we wait for that glorious day, 
as we muddle on through the mess of life, as we're faced with situations that are less than ideal, and when there are no good choices open to us, only bad, worse, or horrific, ethics stays hard. And there's the chances that we'll make wrong choices, or that we already have, maybe even today. But our Lord Jesus came into the world to deal with the sinful mess. He came to deal with the sinful mess of our own hearts. Jesus came to bless us with the forgiveness of sins. And there is nothing that anyone can do to stop him. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus. And we praise you for his life, his death and his resurrection. We praise you that on the cross, he was exchanged for us, and that he, the innocent one, took the penalty that we, the guilty, deserved. Father, we ask for your wisdom uh, as we face life. And we ask that you'd help us to know your heart and to know your commands and your desires. Lord, please help us to be wise to work out uh, when we can simply follow a rule and when we need to have a little more imagination. Father, please give each of us uh, really strong moral imaginations uh, such that we can think of alternative ways to act. Father, please help us to put off the old self and to put on the new self that's being renewed in the image of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.